Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Thanks for being here with us this morning. A great way to start off our service with baptisms and then always worshiping the Lord together, reading some scripture together. It's, it's a good time. If you have your Bible, go to the book of Titus. It's in the New Testament. Um, and it's later on in the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible. Um, it's called one of the letters of Paul's. It's First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus make up together what we call the pastoral letters. And those are letters specifically written by this this apostle named Paul to both Timothy and Titus, who were younger pastors who saw themselves in pretty significant leadership challenges. And so Paul writes these letters to, to help them navigate uh, some of those difficult times that they found themselves in. And for Titus specifically, Titus was a, a pastor on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And there were several churches all over the island of Crete. And so Titus kind of was challenged and, I guess, appointed by Paul to kind of oversee all of those churches to help them get started, to help them get healthy. And so this book of Titus is really Paul's instruction to Titus on how to make churches healthy. And so we've kind of been looking at this and seeing application for, for Canaan and for the modern-day church because, amazing, even though Paul writes this letter in a certain context to a certain individual with certain circumstances, it is timeless in its application for all churches. And so it's very beneficial to us. And so, so far we've looked at how the gospel's got to be the foundation of the church. We've looked at the offices of the church, elder slash pastor, and then deacons. And uh, then we've also, last week, looked at chapter two, just beginning to look at what does it mean for to be a church member? What does it mean to pursue godliness? And we're going to kind of finish up that conversation today. But what does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? And so we're going to look at supernatural devotion um, today. So Titus chapter 3, we're going to kind of cover uh, most of the chapter. We'll leave out some of the specific names he uses in the greetings and that sort of thing. But uh, this is the, the last last day that we're in uh, the book of Titus. So uh, we're going to go out just looking at this challenge from Paul about our supernatural devotion, what that means and, and what that looks like and how our life is truly changed by the power of Christ. And so for those of you who are here this morning who are followers of Jesus and believe yourself to be devoted to Christ, just with an amen, have you seen Jesus really make a big difference in your life? Amen. And so that's, that's really the testimony of genuine believers. And we're going to unpack that today because it's such a critical, I think, delineation to make is that we look at becoming a Christian as just that one moment in time when maybe you, you, know, you voiced a prayer or you made a decision, but there's, there, there's so much more to that. And so we're going to kind of look at all that um, today. So if you could please stand and honor the reading of God's Word as we uh, read together uh, the book of Titus. Chapter 3, we'll actually read the entire chapter. It's pretty short. Um, I think it's like 15 verses. So we'll look at that here uh, this morning. All right, so this is from the Apostle Paul, uh, final chapter um, to Titus. So he says, remind them, them being those in the church, followers of Jesus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, 
and detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by the works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. Now when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so they will lack nothing. And our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we continue to praise you, to honor you, just as we read about in Psalm 145 and sang about, because God, you are the, the giver of salvation, the giver of life, and the giver of eternal life. So Lord, thank you. And God, I just pray that as we continue worshiping you now through the reading and discussion of the word, I pray that you would just speak to every one of us here. God, we acknowledge and confess that none of us are here just randomly. Um, God, you have ordained this time for us to be here. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you promise us to meet with us where two or three are gathered together in your name. Uh, we know that you are in our midst. And so, Lord, we just pray that you accomplish your perfect awesome plan for every one of us here today. So God, we, uh, we just love you. Thank you for this privilege uh, to gather and to worship you, to encourage each other. Lord, help us to never take this beautiful event for granted. So God, uh, we, we want to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So um, if you have the sermon uh, notes that uh, was being handed out, you can go ahead and pull those out. Also, if you don't have that or prefer digital, it's on our app. So if you go to Canaan STL app, uh, you can bring that up and follow along, take notes uh, as we go. And so kind of as we've read this and kind of began to discuss, our, our big thought this morning is simply this. Um, our big thought is, whoop, not that yet. There we go. The, come on. There, it's playing tricks on me. There we go. The big thought is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in us is our supernatural devotion to Jesus. This should be the, the kind of hallmark, the, the manifestation of a genuine faith in Jesus is that we are devoted to Christ. We're going to unpack what devoted means here a little bit. We're devoted to Jesus, that he is our number one, that there should be a... a a radical shift that happens. You know, when we get, 
When that moment in time comes when you get saved, you give your life to Jesus, the Bible calls it being born again, being justified. A lot of, a lot of terms you know, are applied to this one moment in time when we're converted to Christianity, but there is something that happens. The moment you and I are saved, there's something supernatural takes place. One, we're, we're spiritually born. We're going to, uh, Paul uses the word regeneration. That, that takes place in our life. And what happens then is the Holy Spirit of God is infused into you. Folks, that's going to make a change, right? That's going to be a difference there. There's going to be some, some immediate and then some ongoing transformation that takes place. If that doesn't happen... If someone, maybe, maybe it was your experience that, you know, when you were younger, uh, maybe at, at some church or some revival or something, it happened to where there was an invitation given and you, maybe you went forward, maybe you had prayed a prayer and, and all these things, but nothing ever changed. You never had this strong desire to follow Jesus, to, to live for him, to serve him, to deny self, to honor him. If that never happened, then you know, there should be a question is what, is what happened to me real? Because when we're saved, we're infused with the power and the person of God. Amen? And that's going to make a difference. There's going to be some change. And so like the old country preacher said, when you, go, when you get truly saved, your want to changes, right? What you used to want to do, you don't want to do anymore. Now what you want to do is what Jesus wants you to do. Now you still have the flesh, you still have those struggles, we still sin, but now there's also that new want to. So that's kind of where we're at today. So here's, here's how we're looking at this today, because this passage really sets itself up like this. We're going to look at what is characteristic of a life and lifestyle before we meet Jesus. Then we're going to look at how we come to Jesus through the gospel, and there's a very clear presentation of the gospel here in this chapter. And then we're going to look at how does Jesus make a difference in my life? You know, we asked that question to Julia in the video. How has your, how's Jesus changed your life? And all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be able to look back and say, oh, Jesus has made a big difference in my life because that's what he does. And so that's, that's how we're framing this. It's also a very um, easy and effective way to kind of organize your own personal testimony. What was your life like before Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? How has Jesus made a difference in your life since then? It's a great way to tell your story, whether you're at work or in the family or, or whatever, because you know, that's what we're called to do is to share the greatness of Jesus. So let's look at this. Before we meet Jesus, we are characterized by natural selfishness. And some of you may say, well, yeah, I'm not, very, I'm not a very selfish person. Yeah, you probably are, <laughs> right? We have that within us. All of you that have children, you know this to be true, right? We talk about this a lot, but how many of you had to teach your child how to be selfish? No. Right, it's just innate. It's already in there. We do have to teach them how to share. And that's hard, you know, to get our kids to share with each other. Especially if there's like a prize toy or something, they'll fight over that all the time. You know, we have, we have one iPad in my house. And that thing is the source of so many wars and battles. You know, it's just crazy. Um, so I get it on Sunday morning. So it's right here. But, you know, uh, uh, but anyway, but this teaching kids to share is it's a battle because we have this innate natural selfishness. So let's, um, let's look at that. So the first thing we see here is because of our selfishness, there's foolishness. So here Paul begins to unpack this, uh, this natural selfishness here in, in the very uh, beginning of this passage. Um, he says right here in 
You know, starting in verse one, what he reminds them us to do, uh, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one. But then he goes on in verse um, three, he says, for we too were once foolish. And what this means is it's the opposite of wisdom. All throughout scripture, we're told to be wise and that the source of wisdom is the word of God, the truth of God's word, and we're to, to inundate ourselves with the word of God so that we will make wise decisions, we'll live wisely. Well, foolishness is the opposite of that. And so we, James really unpacks this very well in another New Testament book. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he says this in James 3. He says, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I think there's a great lack of wisdom in our culture today, right? And we're going to see that. Um, it goes on. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then uh, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So whenever you see foolishness, you're going to see the void of these things. There will not be purity. There will not be peace. There will not be gentleness and how we treat each other. There will not be an openness to reason and to logic. Uh, there will not be mercy. It will all be wrath and uh, a, a kind of a twisted view of justice. There will not be good fruits. There will not be impartiality. So that means there will be bias and prejudice. And there will not be sincerity. It will be a lot of fake and phony and hypocrisy that goes on. And that's what we see. Anytime you see a, a void of the wisdom of God, these are the elements that we see. It's all rooted in foolishness. And as we go, you're gonna see this kind, of, this kind of builds. Like foolishness leads to disobedience. And that's the second thing Paul mentions. When you're foolish and we don't take seriously the wisdom and the counsel of God, that leads us to be disobedient, to act on our own selfish desires, which leads to all those other things that James mentioned. And being disobedient, that leaves us open to being deceived. There's so much deception in our world today. Other worldviews, and we talked about this last week, worldview is so important. Um, all of us have a worldview. The worldview is really that lens through which we, we see and interpret reality. It's where we gain and gauge our values. Um, so there's a lot of different worldviews that are, exist in our culture, and you know, a lot of these ungodly worldviews are even seeping into unknowingly into the church and into our own ideologies. Um, but we've got to be careful to, to make our worldview a biblical worldview. This, a simple question is this, what is, what is mankind? I mean, who are we? You look at it through the lens of secular humanism, which is a worldview that's based on atheism. Secular humanists will say that mankind, you're ba we're basically good. We're good people. We just kind of gradually get corrupted. Our families corrupt us, some more than others, right? No, but our families corrupt us. The environments we're in corrupt us and kind of lead us toward evil. But we're basically good. But to come along to Scripture, the biblical worldview is quite the opposite. The Scripture says, no, we are born sinners. We're born with this natural selfishness. That's why Paul says, like in Romans chapter 3, there's no one good. No, not one. There's no one who seeks God, none who understands. And kind of summarizes verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us are good in and of ourselves. 
Now, yes, we're image bearers of God, but even that image is broken and shattered ever since Adam and Eve messed it up in the garden. And we can get mad at them, but we probably would have done the same thing. We'd have messed it up too. So we're just broken, shattered people in our image bearing of God. And so just a difference of a worldview. But we carry that on, that leads to radically different connections. So example, if you think that mankind is basically good, then if mankind is able to hold on to that goodness, then maybe when that, man, that person, that man or woman dies, God will say, yeah, you've done a good job, so therefore I've got to let you into this good place. So where that theology goes, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible, the biblical worldview is since we're sinners, we have to be rescued. And that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. God in the flesh saves us. He rescues us. So so much deception on so many levels This goes on, and that's the enemy's ploy, always has been. But when we're deceived, we're also then become enslaved to various passions. You can go to Romans 1 here, how because of their, you know, vile acts, God just gives them over to the debased mind. And so it just leads to this being enslaved. And we understand enslavement because of addictions in our time. You know, we're in a, a major opioid pandemic where there are just many, many, many people, even in, especially even in our St. Louis area, who become enslaved to opioids. And there's all kinds of other addictions. Um, you just look at our nation, so much sexual perversion. You know, we are, uh, as a culture, addicted to sexuality. And so we're just so many addictions and becomes enslaved to that. And it's just, it's rough. And because of those enslavements, then that leads to living in malice and envy. That's the way we treat each other, really, living in malice and envy. That, that really describes our political landscape in our nation, right? So much malice and envy towards one another, which leads us to being hateful, full of hate. And when we don't agree with someone, we're accused of hating. Folks, if that was true, then we would all hate each other in here. I'm, I guarantee you there's things that each of us disagree on at some level in here. You know, we have discussions about eschatology, you know, and end times. And, you know, what's the, are we pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill? Some of you might be pan-mill. It's all going to pan out in the end, right? Whatever you are, we can have disagreement on that. That don't mean we hate each other. Just because we disagree with someone does not mean we hate them, right? It's just disagreeing. A lot of us disagree with each other on elements, but we still love each other. We still do uh, gospel ministry together. But hateful is a trademark of living without Jesus, being that natural selfishness. And hateful leads to detesting one another. And here's something we've got to just be aware of. Someone who does not have Jesus, who has not met Jesus yet, we cannot expect them to live in a way as though they have been transformed by the grace of Jesus, right? We can't expect that. So in the, in the relationships we have with those who aren't believers yet, we can't lead in with law. We can't lead in with, well, you should do this, this, or that. We've got to just love them with the love of Jesus, be kind and gracious to them, encouraging them, always telling their story, sharing the gospel, talking about the gospel. But we we don't do the saving, as we're going to see in a minute. It is Jesus that does the saving, Jesus that does the changing, not us. So let's just, let's just go ahead and confess that out loud. Just repeat after me. I cannot change anyone. You can't. We can't change anyone else, right? Now, we can expose them to truth. We can encourage them. We can be in a level of an influence, but when it comes to change, we just can't do it. 
fact, let's be honest. We struggle sometimes to even change ourselves. Amen? Right? Well, we got to understand that. So when we see these, this hate speech and we see people detesting one another, just understand it for what it is. It's just simply a void of the person of Jesus in their life. And that all results in divisiveness, whether it's being divisive in our nation. Uh, if you get people that act like this in a church, it could be divisive in a church or any group, a family, divisive. So that's what it's like before we meet Jesus. But then we meet Jesus, God, through God's gospel. And the only way to meet the real, genuine Jesus is through the gospel. That's it. And so we love this word here in, in verse 4. The starts off with but. Like, here's lifestyle before you meet Jesus, but here's Jesus. And so we meet him. And uh, here's, and, you know, Paul writes this. And I'm sure that as Paul's writing this, he's remembering back to his own story. He remembers it's recorded in Acts chapter 9. He's remembering back to when he was passionate about killing Christians, arresting them. I mean, he's there when the deacon Stephen is stoned to death, and he's saying, hey, boys, give me your coach. You can rear back and let him have it. You know, he's, he's urging this on. In fact, some scholars think he was actually the leader of that whole conspiracy to, to stone Stephen. And so he's, he's on his way. He's traveling up to this city called Damascus to arrest Christians and imprison them, maybe even kill them. He really has a blank check by the, the Jewish leadership to do whatever he wants to do. But on that road, he meets Jesus. Jesus appears to Paul. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul, right there, is completely changed. Right there in that moment, he converts. He goes from being one who's pursuing to kill Christians to now on a path to becoming one of the great leaders of Christians. So I know when, don't you know when Paul's writing this to Titus about the power of the gospel, Paul is just dwelling and thanking God and just meditating on how God has made such a powerful impact in his own life. So he writes this, God's gospel. First thing we see that it's because of the kindness of God. It says, when the kindness of God, our Savior. It is kind for God to show up in our life. It's kindness. You know, in this, the, we see in Romans 2, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What leads us to that change? What leads us to that desire, that, the want to want Jesus, right? It's the kindness of God. To know that God doesn't owe us anything. If God never did anything else for us, he is completely justified and he is completely righteous in so doing. You realize that? It's not like that God owes us, right? In fact, another confession time, just prepare for me. God owes me nothing. Nothing. The only thing God is bound to do for you is that which he has promised to do for you. And therefore, he's bound to do that not because of you, but because of his promise. Does that make sense? Everybody follow that? That's all that God, he, does, he owes us nothing. It's not that any of us have been so good, so incredible, that God has to do this for us or that for us. No, it's not the way it is. So don't presume on the riches of his kindness, but his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance because of his kindness and because of the love of God. Secondly, it says, 
when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. So the, the personification of God's mercy and his kindness, the personification of God's love is Jesus. He's the one who appeared. He is God's kindness. He is the manifestation of God's love. And then we see this simple phrase, he saved us. God saves us. Again, we don't save anybody. God saves us. We can share the gospel. The gospel is God's vehicle to save, but we don't do that. We just share that. And so God saves us. And now Paul adds some qualifiers here. And this is pretty profound. This, this does not go in the way we normally think in our American worldview. He saves us not because of our works. So if you're of that mindset, which is so common in America, we talk about this a lot for good reason, but if you're of that mindset, for God to save me, I've got to try to be a good person, and hopefully when I get to heaven, my, you know, if my good works are put on this side of a scale and sinful deeds are put on this side of a scale, hopefully my, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and God say, okay, you, you made it, but man, just by the hair of your chinny chin chin, right? You know, you just barely made it. That, that's not going to happen. Because the, the scripture says in Isaiah that even our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. So you can put your best day, your best moment on the good side of the scale, and it's still going to go. Whoosh. Because even our best actions are filthy rags because God is so holy and pure in a way we can't even fathom. And a lot of times, even the good things we do, we can still do out of selfish motivations and reasoning. It's just, it gets so complicated, right? We can't be saved because of our works. And Paul is so crystal clear. Look what he says in Ephesians 2. This is so clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So there you go. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So it's not of works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Mercy, and I know we've defined this before, but mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. It's kind of the flip side of coin of grace. Grace is when God does give us what we don't deserve. So you put those together, it's a beautiful picture, but mercy is not giving us what we deserve. We deserve justice, we deserve wrath, we deserve condemnation, but he doesn't give us those. Instead, he gives us the washing of regeneration. This is a, an interesting word so according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration, we see here. And so this word, regeneration, is really a compound word. It really means to begin again or a new beginning. It's kind of the Greek um, combination word here. So it refers to that new birth. It refers to that moment, a moment in time where God's act of causing the sinner to pass from death of sin into the spiritual life in Christ. Like in... Um, John chapter 3, it's a great historical event where Nicodemus, who's a pretty well-known Pharisee, in fact, he's pretty high-ranking, and, and he's supposed to be against Jesus. You know, all the establishment was against Jesus, and so Nicodemus was one of those. But something about this Jesus that really grabbed Nicodemus' attention, you know, perked his curiosity, and we really know that God was already doing kind of a work in Nicodemus because he later becomes a follower of Jesus, but but it's nighttime, so Nicodemus kind of sneaks over to talk to Jesus at night because he didn't want any of his, his buddies and comrades seeing that he's going to the dark side, what they thought, right? So he goes over to talk to Jesus, and he gets to Jesus and says, Teacher, we know you're from God because no one can do the works that you do unless he's from God. And Jesus didn't try to just, he just cuts to the chase. He says, 
I'm telling you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And of course, that ascends Nicodemus, his mind, you know, kind of spinning. But Jesus uses that phrase there, born again. And it could also be just very accurately translated, born from above, meaning it's something that God does. We cannot manufacture our own birth, right? Just like you did not manufacture your physical birth, you cannot manufacture your spiritual birth. It's something God does. But, you know, Nicodemus, he spins in his mind, he says, how can that be? For how can someone enter a second time into his mother's womb? Don't understand the mechanics of that. Jesus goes on and says, he explains how, you know, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. So don't marvel that I said you must be born again. So what he's talking about is this moment in time when you and I have faith, that we believe the gospel, we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which generates a desire to repent. And so there's repentance, which means the turning away from the change that happens uh, in our life from our sin, away from our sin to follow God. So this, this regeneration is that moment in time. It's a new beginning. In fact, Jesus uses the same term, not to talk about a human, but to talk about creation. Matthew 19, he says, truly I say to you, in the new world, that new world is in the regeneration. You could just say, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to his apostles there. But he uses that same term, that new beginning, that beginning again. So we are saved through the washing of regeneration, and then he adds this phrase, and through the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, this word renewal is kind of a synonym, but a little bit different than regeneration. Um, it means to cause something to become new and different with the implication of becoming superior. A good word here would be renovate. Renovate. Now, how many of you have ever had anything in your house renovated? Yep. Guys, when we hear renovation, we hear project, we hear time, work, money, right? All that stuff goes with it. But how cool would it be? Wait a minute, let me back up. This word renewal, it, it implies not a moment in time, but a process. Now, wouldn't it have been awesome if we could renovate our house in a moment and it'd be done? It's not the way it works. It is a process. It gets messy. It's kind of painful. I know a few years ago, we, we renovated our kitchen. And, uh, you know, before we could make it look new, we first had to take all the old out. And that was a process. So we had some guys from the men ministry help out. It was a great group. And so anyway, we're over there. We, we, um, we take out some counters and all that and cabinets. But then we get to the floor. And so we removed, we had these ceramic tiles in our kitchen. So we, we, we got those up, only to find that there was a layer of linoleum under that. Oh, boy. So then we peeled that linoleum off only to find there is another layer of linoleum under that. I'm like, good grief. So we take all of that out. We finally get down to the subfloor, the plywood, right? And then there's this, this crazy hump right in the middle of our kitchen. It went the whole width of our kitchen, just a hump. We thought maybe they put too much flooring on part, but no. They had put the joists in, and it was like too high. It was like two inches too high. So there's, there's this weird hump in my kitchen. And it's our fault we bought it like that, right? So, you know, but anyway, but there was this hump in the kitchen. So then they had the, the guys got their little tools, I don't even know, a planer or something. They, they like, they took, took two inches of the floor joist off. So it would finally be level. So we got all that out, all the nails and all the glue and all the flooring. It was just the biggest mess before we could even get to 
renovating it back to, to be new again, right? That's kind of like our lives. This whole, whereas regeneration is like the moment we're justified and born again, this renewal is like what the Bible calls our sanctification. It's that process by which we're made like Jesus. And folks, it gets messy. I mean, if you're dealing with your sin, I mean, we're that way, right? When, when God does a work in us and he gives us, you know, the, the strength of the Spirit to overcome a sin, we rip that layer of sin off, only discover, well, there's another layer right under that. It's like linoleum. It just always seems like there's another layer. And it gets messy. Now, we had this big dumpster covered my entire driveway, just throwing junk in it, you know, pieces of flooring, old, hey, there's trash in our lives that God's going to deal with. And it's going to fill up a dumpster. It's going to look messy. But it gets messy before it gets beautiful. God's going to do the work. So don't, don't despair if God's doing a work in your life, but it seems like it's getting messier at the moment. When you're, when you're trying to overcome an addiction through the power of Christ, it can get messy. When you say, all right, I, I'm addicted, and you start that process of trying to become clean, and you, you withdraw yourself from some, the physical, if it's a physical addiction, you, you withdraw yourself. All of a sudden, that, that craving is stronger than ever, and it's just, I'm never going to beat this. It gets messier before it gets better, but keep on keeping on. You know, we didn't get in the middle of our kitchen renovation when we got down to the subfloor in the hump and just say, we're, we quit, we're done. No, my wife would have killed me, right? It was not going to happen. We have to persevere through it. The Holy Spirit will and can, he promises to continue to do the work in you and through you. Just continue to trust because he pours his spirit on us abundantly. That's what Paul says here. This is verse number six. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly, not just a little bit. He lavishes us upon him. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, and it's a great motivator for us, great encouragement. It says, where sin abounds, grace abounds what? Much more. Isn't that great news? Because we're justified purely by his grace, meaning we're made right with God. I love what John 1.12 says, anyone who believes in him, he gives them the right to be called children of God. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. <clears throat> the letter F, here according to Paul, we become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So it's so what we're like before Jesus. We meet Jesus through this gospel and only through the gospel. But then we see after we meet Jesus, it's supernatural devotion. We go from natural selfishness to supernatural devotion. And so here we see this all throughout here, this text, but this word devoted is, a, is an interesting concept. <laughs> here the word devoted, it's, um, verse one says, you know, it tells us about being in good works. Verse eight says, be careful to devote themselves to good works. Verse 14 says, must learn to devote themselves to good works. This is a major theme to this whole chapter. The word devoted here has to do with not just merely being passionate about, you know, and it's not a hopeless devotion like, you know, if you remember back in the 70s, those of you who were alive back then, movie Grease, right? Olivia Newton-John singing that song, hopelessly devoted. We're not hopelessly devoted. We're very hopefully devoted. And, but this word devoted has to do with value, prizing, um, esteeming. So 
When you're devoted to Jesus, it means you're, you value him more than anyone else. You are all in to serve and honor Jesus first and foremost. It is the value is everything, right? That's what devoted means. It's not just a, a casual commitment. It is I'm all in. And so here we see kind of some, some manifestations of that kind of devotion. It says those who are truly devoted to Jesus, we see it's in verse 1, to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. We're submitted to rulers and authorities. Because if you look at Ephesians 5, where um, Paul says, look, don't, don't be just be filled with wine. That leads to debauchery. But it said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, he talks about what does that look like? What does it look like when you and I are filled with the Spirit of God? He says, well, we're singing songs to each other. We're you know, encouraging each other, making melody in your heart. And he talks about then in the context of relationships, that we're submitted to one another as we're submitted to Christ. And he talks about what that looks like in marriages. He talks about what that looks like with parents and children. He talks about that what that looks like back in those days, masters and slaves, which today better uh, um, kind of a connection to be employers, employees. He looks at all that. So there's this idea that when we are filled with the Spirit of God, we are submitted. Not because we're weak, but because of Christ's strength in us. And so because we're submitted, we are obedient to the Lord. We're submitted to him. So the Spirit of God empowers us to be obedient. Like Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, For it's God that works in us both to will or to want to and to do the things he's called us to do. That happens through the Spirit of God. And also, we are eager to serve. We said in verse 1, the eagerness. Verse 8, verse 14, all allude to this, be eager to serve. Now, apply that here to our church family. So, you know, we, we're all times broadcasting serving opportunities. Like right now, we're getting ready to launch our Melville campus in October. There's a lot of serving opportunities. You know, and, and so some of you, um, God is, has already kind of prodded you. Some of you might be in that process of discerning, but God's going to send some of you to be part of what we're calling the core team. And that's the group that's, you know, you're, you're all in for Melville. Melville is going to be your home place of worship. It's where you serve. It's where you're going to base your, you know, your, your church participation in. But then there's going to be a lot of you that aren't part of the core team, but what we're calling the support team. And that's those that you're going to still call Oakville campus right here. This is your home. This is where you worship. This is where you serve. But maybe once a month or once every other month, you're going to serve in a rotation at Melville because that's what the body of Christ needs. And that's what the Lord is calling us to do to make this a successful gospel venture in Melville. And so eager to serve means you're not just sitting back waiting to be asked. You're, you're eager like, serving the Lord is a priority. So you're going to jump right in and say, hey, I'm here to serve. Where, where can I serve? And so it was really cool back in the late 90s, Tara and I, we, were, we, uh, we led a church plant. And when you have a church plant, there's a lot to be done, and there's not a lot of people to do it, right? And so it was, it was really funny. We'd have, um, like, this, we had this family that visited, and you could tell that they were used to church. They'd been in church a long time, and I think he had been, like, an ordained, he's an, he was an ordained deacon and all that sort of thing. Well, he comes up to me after church one day. He says, hey, um, we're here to serve. Where can I serve? I'm like, well, really? Go grab those chairs and let's stack them up. He was like, well, <laughs> I kind of meant, you know, do you need somebody to help with the money or whatever? like, Right now, I just need people to stack chairs. You know, do you have a servant's heart? That's, that was kind of the, what I got from that was, a lot of us have, we'll serve, but only on our terms. What does a servant do? Servants serve when God calls them to serve, right? 
It's a little bit of a difference, right? So be willing that eagerness to serve, serve Jesus no matter what it means. Hey, if I got to stack chairs, I will stack chairs. Believe me, I have stacked a ton of chairs, right? It's just you're, you're willing to do whatever needs to be done. That is that eagerness to serve here that Paul is getting to. Um, you're, you're stepping up, you're filling a void and that eagerness. Um, secondly, or not secondly, but letter D, we are kind. That's the next thing he mentions here, is that we are kind, kind to one another. We're here in, um, in verse um, one and two, just being that, that, that word kind is there. And then we also see this word gentle. But I'm calling it meek. I think meek is also an accurate translation. Gentle for us can carry some idea of being weak, it wasn't then, then it was understood. Gentle didn't mean weak, it just meant kind and gracious. But I think today, gentle kind of has a weak, and that's not what God's talking about here, meek. Meek is strength under control. You know, a lot of strength under control, like Jesus. Jesus was the creator of the universe, right? He was always God, he never stopped being God. And so when Jesus was going through his trials the night before his crucifixion, they were spitting on him. They were smacking him in the face. They were calling him names. They were putting the crown of thorns and twisting it. And, and like saying, oh, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Just all these horrible things they were doing. And, and Jesus even reminds Peter at one point, he says, don't you know at any moment I could call down 12 legions of angels and my phrase, take care of business? He had all the strength. He had all the power to exact in that moment any kind of revenge or rescue or retribution he desired, but he didn't. He had all that strength and power under control. Like how many of you, how many of y'all been in a fight before? Like I'm talking about a real, I know I have, come on, own it, let's go. Yep, all right, yeah, a few of us have. What happened in that moment? Usually, especially when it's guys, what happens with ladies too? I saw a few girl fights in high school, right? Those were always very entertaining, by the way, but... So I digress. Well, you know, when we get in a fight, there's usually something happens where one of us loses control. That, that whatever it is that's preventing us from rearing back and letting the fist fly, that inhibitor goes out the window and we lose control. And that's, you know, ends up as not a good thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to be a little... Overly blunt. Any idiot can lose control. It takes a real godly person to keep control. That's meek. Meek is power, strength, where you have the ability to beat the living daylights out of someone, but you don't. Strength is when you have the ability to get revenge, retribution, you have a power and opportunity like Joseph in the Old Testament with his brothers who show up after years later of when they sold him into slavery. If you don't know that story, go read Genesis like 38 through 50. Great story. And Joseph, all the power, all the opportunity, but he doesn't. It's meek. That's what we're called to be. And lastly, we're called to be fruitful. When we do all these things, when we're submitted, when we're kind, when we're meek, when we're devoted to Jesus, we bear fruit, meaning just like an apple tree produces apples, which produces other apple trees, we as believers produce through the gospel, through us sharing the gospel, doing the work of the Lord, we produce other believers who produce other believers or churches. That's fruitful. 
And that's what God has called us to be. So here's kind of a structure for your testimony. What was I like before I met Jesus? You were naturally selfish, but what were you like? How do you, how did you meet Jesus? What's the story of you hearing the gospel? Some of these questions we asked, you know, Victoria and Julia in the video. How did you meet Jesus? When did you first hear the gospel? And then what kind of difference has Jesus made in your life? So go through that. What's your testimony look like? If you get stuck to where I haven't seen the change, maybe that should raise a question. Am I truly born again? Or maybe you are, but in the after of meeting Jesus, there's still some of those natural selfishness you're seeing reason in their ugly head, and you just need to repent of that. You need to say, Lord, just get rid of that in my life. This is a great time to take care of some of that business. We call this our time of commitment. It's time for you to respond, you know, to, to take what the Lord has laid on your heart, convicted you about, put in your mind, you're thinking about, saying, Lord, I need, I need to do something with this. This is that time for you to respond. So let's all stand. We're going to pray together and give you time to respond in a way that honors the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we get to spend with you and with each other. God, to hear your word, to, to hear you speak to our hearts and minds through your word. And I just pray, God, that right now, whatever you're putting into our, our minds and hearts, as far as conviction goes, to act upon, that, God, we would be obedient and we would act. Lord, for some, it may be to um, trust in you as our Lord and Savior, to have that encounter of becoming re regenerated. And so, Lord, I just pray that you're working in hearts, those here and those watching online at this moment. God, maybe for some, their, their next step is to join the church family, or God, maybe it's their next step is to just really get serious about certain things in your life that need to, need to go away, because they're from that, what they were like before they met Jesus lifestyle. And God, maybe there's some things that, maybe they're saved, they've met you, they've trusted in you, but God, maybe there's some aspects of this change that Paul talks about that they're not seeing yet. These are some things they need to start doing. Maybe to grow in meekness, maybe to grow in kindness, or God, maybe just to truly be devoted to you. God, you know us, every one of us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know exactly where we are in this relationship with you. Lord, I just pray that right here, right now, that you would just make it very clear in every single one of our hearts and minds as individuals what you're calling us to do, what's, what's our next step, and that God, through faith in you, a trust in you, and a recognition that we are not here by accident this morning, that we would take that step in obedience to you. So Lord, this is your time. Just use it for your glory and honor. And God, we can only do all this because you are alive. Jesus, you came out of that tomb alive and you reign. So help us to honor and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.